Welcome to the podcast Past Imperfect, a podcast about South African history, literature and art. The first podcast is one on Sol Plaki, the politician, writer and activist. In the first part, we got up to 1919, just before the second ANC deputation to Britain. I am speaking to Plaki's biographer, Brian Woolen. Plaki came back to South Africa. He got ill and his whole family got ill um, with the 1919 Spanish flu epidemic. And then after the war, there was another deputation sent to Britain. And a really fascinating thing happened at that one in that Plaki actually got to meet Lloyd George, who was then the Prime Minister. Yeah, this finally took place in uh, November uh, 1919 at the, uh, at the House of Commons. Um, Plaiky and, and the other delegates had gone on to England ahead of him, and they'd all tried to, um, to get an interview with Lloyd George, and two of the others actually went to Versailles, where the peace negotiations were taking place. And, and Lloyd George apparently had, then had at least agreed to see them um, you know, once he got back to England. Well, you know, he got back to England and they kept trying to arrange meetings and, and there would be no response. I think, interestingly, it was it was Pikey's connections with some people in the Brotherhood organisation, which was a, a kind of, you know, religious organisation that had been very supportive of, uh, of him, but which also had quite a lot of support amongst Labour and Liberal members of parliament and several of those Plaiky knew and they had some sway I think with Lloyd George. And that Brotherhood organisation was an international organisation. That's right. And Plaiky wanted to set it up. And, and he did. Yeah, he, did. Yeah. he set up a, a kind of branch in, in, in Kimberley mm-hmm. you know, in between the two deputations. Yeah. What's interesting is I mean I think Lloyd George was regarded by the colonial office as a bit of a loose cannon and um, they, they were actually very worried I think that you know they were not at all in favour of this meeting taking place because they knew that Lloyd George was you know quite an emotional sort of person you know was actually likely to respond you know to a a powerful emotional case you know that was put to them Mm -hmm. and uh, this is exactly what happens Um, Plaikey and and his his colleagues you know put their case to uh, to Lloyd George and and it's quite clear that Lloyd George was highly impressed by the case that they made and you know couldn't quite understand that if things were as they were telling him, you know, well, surely something needed to be done about it. And so he told the delegates that um, he would write to uh, General Smuts, who by this time was the Prime Minister. Because Boerter had just died. Boerter had yeah. just died, yeah. and Smuts had, you know, had just recently taken over. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did. He was as good as his word. He sent, actually, two letters, um, you know, which were kept a secret for, mm-hmm. I think, at least 50 years, um, you know, before anybody was able to see them. And, and essentially, they were, they were very, you know, personal letters. And it was Lloyd George saying to to General Smuts that um, he thought really he ought to see these people when they came back to South Africa because they'd put such a, a powerful case across to him. Uh, and he compared the case that they had put to him with the case that the Afrikaner nationalists had put to them because they had gone to see him in Versailles and Herzog and his people had said, we want to secede from the British Empire, we don't want to be part of it. And mm-hmm. it, it had actually been a, a very bad-tempered meeting and, mm-hmm. you know, it had ended in quite a lot of acrimony. And here was Plaiky and his people saying, no, you know, uh, we we want to be part of the British Empire. You know, we, 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 we support this kind of ideal of the British Empire and the kind of future that had been set out for it. And so... Uh, Lloyd George wrote these letters and mm-hmm. he and he said to Smuts, well, look, you know, if you can't do something about this, I'm a bit worried that actually, you know, there'll be all sorts of unrest. Yeah. Um, 
And he it's seems to be hugely impressed by flight. He, I mean, there's a quote, I can't find it now, but he said something like, you know, you've got a formidable opponent yeah. on your hands here. Yeah. Um, and you must listen to him. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's you know, and it was it was you know, I think it was a, a remarkable achievement in a way to have you know essentially persuaded you know Lloyd George of their views and for him to have taken the action that he took. Mm-hmm. Now you know, it, of course, it didn't actually lead to anything. Yeah. The problem was you know. Uh, you need to persuade much more than just a, a slightly eccentric British Prime Minister to take some action. You know, there was a whole kind of well, there was the colonial. There was a whole tradition and history of kind of collaboration. You know, with um, and support for the kind of policies that the South African government were implementing, many of which actually arose from the kind of things that during the British occupation, you know, was was kind of set in set in motion at, at that point. So Lloyd George was really kind of stepping stepping out of line there. But he was concerned that I mean, not just about South Africa. Actually, he he said, look, um, uh, I'm concerned about unrest within the empire as a whole. You know, this was the time of the Russian Revolution and a lot of concern about you know the threat to the British Empire and and at some point Plyke and the deputation were kind of painted almost as potential revolutionaries nothing could have been further from Plyke and the, the deputation that went over in 1990 no. at one at one level that's 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 the case I mean Plyke was certainly not sympathetic to the communists and, and the socialists and revolutionaries that was not his his approach mm-hmm. at all on the other hand um, he was perfectly willing to go and speak from platforms that they offer to him um, and to speak to, for example, an interesting series of meetings in, in Red Clydeside. You know, this was very much the time of kind of militant industrial unrest in uh, in Scotland. Mm-hmm. And Plyke spent a, a week in Scotland and, um, you know, got a, a huge amount of, you know, support for, mm-hmm. for what he was saying. And he seemed to be very popular amongst the the Scots. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I don't, you know, I, I think Plyke would never, you know, agree with their kind of solution to, you know, the the kind of political issues of the day. But, um, you know, if they were prepared to listen to him and to accept the justice of his case and to, you know, to to, to put pressure on the powers that be, well. So be it. And then he seemed to have a, a long-term dream of getting to America, but there was some impediments placed before him as far as certainly getting into the United States. He could get into Canada because in Canada you didn't need a passport to get into Canada as, as yeah, part no, of the as Commonwealth. A, as a British yeah. citizen. Yeah, so he, he, he made his way to Canada with the help of the Brotherhood. And ended up there. So, what 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 was the impediment put in his place to get to to the states? The the, the impediment was that uh, he couldn't get a passport um, either from the British government or from the South African government, uh, or indeed from the uh, American authorities. And they had all communicated, you know, with with one another and had come to the conclusion that on the whole they didn't want to um, encourage Plyke to, to go to the States so they you know, came up with some reasons as to why this would not be a, a good idea um, although interestingly they, they weren't totally of a, a mind on this. Um, F.S. Milan who mm-hmm. was the Deputy Prime Minister who's another um, kind of Cape Liberal another Cape Liberal figure actually wasn't quite as bothered about this and his initial view was that well you know he didn't particularly want to encourage Plyke to go off to America but you know he didn't see any reason why 
you know, they should put obstacles in his way. Whereas the the Secretary of Native Affairs in South Africa, you know, who actually reported to him, you know, was far more worried about it and, um, you know, was concerned that, that Plyke was quite capable of arousing opinion, which could cause, you know, an awful lot of trouble and difficult questions to be asked. So essentially, uh, when it came to it, it was his view that in the end prevailed and, uh, and Plyke was refused a, a passport. But he somewhat mysteriously managed to get a passport, a Canadian passport, that said he was yeah. a man from Toronto. Yeah, yeah. How, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it, the mystery has kind of been solved as to where he probably got that from. I think it, it was... Um, Plyke had been careful to cultivate members of the Brotherhood movement when he was in England. And, and as it happened, there was a big international conference that took place in London in 19, late in 1919, which he went along to and made a lot of contacts with uh, Canadian delegates. There were, I think, more Canadian delegates there than from any other country. So it was big in Canada, the, the Brotherhood organisation. And essentially um, agreed with them that he would, I think for a period of six weeks, um, essentially talk to Canadian Brotherhood meetings uh, about his cause. And uh, I think they supported him while he was in Canada. He actually got the money, I think, to get over there from you know several other uh, of these women sympathisers. I think came up with the money for his ticket, either as a loan or as a, or simply as a, a gift. Betty Mortino, for example, mm-hmm. was you know was was instrumental in this. Um, so the idea was that you know for six weeks you know he would. Um, speak on behalf of the Brotherhood organization. But then after that, he was obviously free to, you know, to go his own way. And what he then wanted to do was to get into the United States and basically convey, you know, his message to, you know, the, the American public, particularly the, uh, the black American mm-hmm. public. It seems like he got the, the passport through... It was the Brotherhood people that, that, that... I mean, some of whom were actually quite sort of influential figures in Toronto. You know, there was a, a judge, for example, who he was quite friendly with. So, you know, these were important people mm-hmm. likely to, you know, have a bit of sway when it came to things like, you know, passports. And so he crossed the border yeah. and got to Buffalo and then went to New York. Yeah. And, and Harlem, he spent a lot of time in, in America. If you could give a kind of brief rundown yeah. of what he did. Yeah, I, I mean, essentially he was, you know. Um, you know, what he was doing by this point, um, I think starts to get a bit more complicated mm-hmm. because essentially he was no longer promoting the cause of the African National Congress per se. You know, they were keen for him to go to America, but they didn't have any money. Mm-hmm. And so they just weren't in a position to, to support him. He was more successful in getting money from his Brotherhood organization. And he was keen to build up uh, his own branch in South Africa. It was already in existence. And he certainly hoped that by going to England and America, he would be able to build up international support and funds, you know, that could be, you know, could be channeled back. He hoped, I think, to sell a lot of his books. Um, I think his idea was that he would live off the proceeds of the sales of the books that he'd written. And this was Native Life in South Africa. And he'd, he'd written a couple of, uh, he'd written a, a book of Proverbs by this time. Uh, there was another pamphlet that he, that, that he wrote called The Boat on the Beam that came yes. out, which actually went down particularly well in America. And the moat and the beam was about... It was essentially about the outrages, supposedly. There was a moral panic that took place in South Africa shortly after Union. 
where there had been a couple of rape cases, and it had caused a kind of huge uproar amongst you know the white community who felt that all sorts of drastic measures needed to be taken and it fed into the whole kind of discourse about you know segregation and all of that but for Pikey it was a huge injustice because it completely ignored the far greater prevalence of rapes and assaults by white men upon black women and, uh, and and so you know this is what he wrote about I mean it was actually very much about the situation in South Africa but because of the kind of connections and the echoes that it had in the States even though it was about South Africa uh, it was immensely popular and I think very much fed into you know current concerns there so it, it sold a lot of copies um, I think he I think about 20,000 copies which was which was a lot but in addition to this he was you know he, by this time he'd written a novel um, Hoody, and mm-hmm. he was trying to find um, publishers for it, and so uh, and he was also trying to raise money for he had uh, he had translated by this point several of Shakespeare's plays into Setswana. Shakespeare was a great interest of his, and uh, he wanted some some money for that as well. And I think there was always a sense that you know anything was achievable in America. That one went to America and you know you could raise funds for these things, and I think he went there with you know very high expectations that he would be able to to come back you know in triumph with you know lots of money for his you know with his novel published mm-hmm. uh, with with funds for his brotherhood organization in South Africa linked into a, a kind of a much larger international organization in the end it didn't materialize after a while people stopped you know buying his books black Americans you know had plenty of concerns of their own they had people like Marcus Garvey was appealing to them. And he well. shared a platform with he both shared, he shared Marcus a, Garvey and W. He did, he did. Um, and and Plikey was always, you know, he was always one to take every opportunity to convey his message, you know, to whoever it was. So, so you know, the, the fact that Du Bois and Marcus Garvey were in a rather different kettle of fish and they're actually very strongly opposed to each other mm-hmm. um, for Blakey that, that wasn't really the point the point was that if they had access to an audience and a particular constituency and if they would listen to what he had to say then you know he would he would, he would speak to anybody and he was in some ways quite surprised at how sort of liberal America was and how easily, certainly in the north, he was accepted and how that he could take trains without anybody seemingly raising an eyebrow. Yeah. You know, he did recognize the problems down in the south, but he felt that America was, you know, moving out of its problems yeah. while South Africa was moving, you know, in kind of polar opposite direction. So after he left America, which he spent some, he spent a great deal of time there, then he went to Britain, and then he came back to South Africa. And yeah, what what happened in the period after, after coming back? He came back, I suppose, to a South Africa that was a rather different kind of place. I think South Africa had sort of, it had settled down a bit, um, in the sense that it had kind of come to terms with uh, a huge, I suppose, series of of kind of disturbances and unrest that um, you know took place at, towards the end of the the First World War. And it actually, I mean, just as Lloyd George had been concerned about you know the effect of all of this in the empire as a whole, within South Africa there had been you know a number of steps taken by both government but also missionaries and uh, and industry particularly the chamber of mines to try and come up with with policies that would 
offer some sort of hope and some sort of place to uh, to educated black South Africans. And behind this, you know, was a, a a desire, if you like, to keep these people away from you know from mass protests, mm-hmm. from aligning their concerns, you know, with those of a a kind of militant black working class, you know, which is what the you know the ruling authorities you know rather rather feared. Um, it was also a, a, a South Africa where. Um, I mean, General Smuts, when Plyke came back, um, was still in power, but uh, this didn't last for very long. There was soon an election. There was a by-election, first of all. Smuts Smuts lost his seat. And then there was a a general election, and the Nationalists and Labour between them had a majority Mm -hmm. and formed a pact. So the two, if you like, political parties that Plyke had been most opposed Mm -hmm. to and I mean, this Labour is not like left-wing British Labour. It's, it's not conservative. It's not white separatist it's, Labour. It's, 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 protect, it's protect white jobs yeah. um, at the expense of everybody else. And Smuts had cracked down on them, and then he lost the next election. Yeah. And Plyke seemed quite lost in all of this politics. This wasn't yeah. Plyke's cup of tea. The, all of the politics that would happen after nineteen twenty-three. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it produced some kind of strange bedfellows in a way because Plyke was still a great believer in the Cape political traditions mm. and he still believed that, you know, within the politics of the Union, the Cape province was still important. There were black voters in a number of constituencies still had, uh, if not majorities, then, you know, influential positions. Um, and it was still possible in in Plyke's view, to to play party politics mm. in order to extract concessions, and so what that led to was that that Plyke then you know looked around and it was obvious that that you know the 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 lesser of the evils if you like was General Smuts and his South African mm-hmm. party, and so in terms of the party politics of the day, I think Plyke thought that well there could be possibilities of working with the South African party, and and in fact what he tried to do was to uh, to get the South African party to support uh, a new newspaper mm. in which he would then edit and he also tried to get the chamber of mines you know to come up with uh, with some money to support uh, a newspaper of his own but i think because this, he had and that's one thing that i we've missed he had run two newspapers before he had um, um but both of them had serious financial problems as Every newspaper always does. And then when he went on the deputations, then, well, the, the first one, then the, pri- the, the price of paper basically yeah. finished yeah. The, the second newspaper. So, yeah. And his dream was to be a... His, his dream was to, to be, you know, to be a newspaper editor again. Um, but the, the, the problem was that in the 1920s, um, you know, the situation was so changed. In, I mean, during the first two decades of the 20th century, his two newspapers essentially had been supported by black consortia. Uh, and in the first case, pretty much uh, uh, Chief, Chief Silas Malema in Africa mm-hmm. had put in a huge amount of money to support Plyke's newspaper venture. I mean, that lasted for kind of seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, but then his funds were exhausted. And then his second newspaper was supported by a group of relatively wealthy black landowners from Tabanshu in, in the Free State. Um, you know, they were the, the kind of people who came together and, and put up the money. Although before too long, Plyke actually then managed to find the funds somehow to, to purchase the newspaper. And so it became, you know, his own you know, kind of going concern of his own. But the problem was, I think by the 1920s, these people, you know, they got 
uh, more indebted. Uh, there were more laws in place that just prevented them from, you know, from making money. And essentially, the possibility that traditional African societies would be in a position to, you know, support a newspaper that gave expression to their interests. Those times had passed. So Planky was then left with the alternative of kind of looking around and trying to see, well, you know, with the new setup, where is where are the possibilities, you know, who might have an interest in supporting a newspaper? And would there be a way that I could accept support from such a source but retain, you know, the degree of, of editorial independence? That, yeah. So, so Planky, he moved around, he tried to set up a, a, a third newspaper. It never, it never happened, really, for him. And he also carried something else around with him. Well, two things. One, one films... Yeah. But the other, I mean, we'll we'll leave the films for because okay. that's also a fascinating part of what he went and did. But but we'll leave that for now. But okay. he had Mahudi the the novel with him, yeah. and um, you know that that is actually how I encountered Blakey was was through his novel. Um, you know, I knew that he was a politician. You know, I encountered him through Mahudi, and I mean, it is a, a fascinating book, and I think in some ways it kind of rounds off all of his life and that it seems to have been somewhat of a kind of repository of both his personal and his political life. Um, in, what, in what sense do you think that is true? Um, I, I think that, that, is, that certainly is the case. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, it's, in many ways, uh, I think it's quite a, a remarkable book. And one of the most remarkable things about it is the, the heroine, Mahudi. Um, you know, who is the, I mean, far and away the kind of the most uh, impressive um, character in the book. I mean, she's married to a, a man called Rataga, who really, in comparison, is a, you know, is not is not a terribly impressive character. Although he has certain feats of arms. He has yeah. certain, he has certain yeah. feats of arms. But I, I think this is one of the the you know the great things about Plyke was that um, um, you know people have read this novel as a kind of feminist novel, and and it's in some ways. You know, it is, mm. um, and uh, and I think Plyke's view, you know, about women goes, you know, right right back to the beginning. Actually, he was always, you know, there was this famous Cecil Rhodes slogan, which you know was taken up and used: equal rights for all civilized oh, yeah. men. Um, and Plyke would always say, I mean, right from the moment that was coined, you know, um, well, of course, we must include women in this as well. Um, and I think in you know within his own family, there seemed to have been some. You know traditions, you know, carried on of of you know very powerful women. I mean, Moody herself, for example, um, you know, he he believed, you know, was was he was descended from. Um, but the the other the other thing uh, that I think is also that is an important thing that that has gone into Moody is the is the connections, the relationships that he had with this group of women that you you referred to earlier on in our conversation. And uh, you know they were they were all actually in their own right tremendously you know, powerful people, and uh, I, and I think the support that they had extended to him during his time in England. Um, he he wrote the book in nineteen twenty, um, and I think it was it was very much you know very much in his mind was you know their struggles both on his behalf. Um, but also in favour of the, the the suffragette movements in, in England, and he made those connections between, you know, the position of women in South Africa, black women in South Africa particularly, uh, and uh, and women in England with the the disabilities that you know that they suffered from. So I think um, you know the context in which that book was written 
probably had quite a, an important effect on, on, on how it turns out. And so I think he, he kind of wrote it um, not as a, a kind of... I mean, it's, it's been subject of all sorts of different interpretations, this novel, but I, I think one thing that it, it, it isn't is a kind of realistic novel mm-hmm. in the kind of predominant you know, Western literary tradition. Um, you know, it's it's kind of sprinkled with you know, full of songs and uh, bits of poetry and and kind of set piece speeches that um, you know are not actually how kind of people you know would speak in everyday life, as it were, but uh, much more akin in a way to to Shakespeare. Mm. And I, I think you could maybe you know see some some influence of, of Shakespeare. In a, upon the uh, upon the way that he, he put Moody together, you know, it has so many vo- again that idea of polyglot. You know, he was criticised by one of his friends for having written it in English, and you know, this is a kind of literary tradition that is the, that has happened. That you know, English is the is the voice of of you know the empire and all of this. What I find kind of frustrating with that argument is that it doesn't recognise. That English is a language spoken all over the world and 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 accepted on different terms all over the world, and that Flaky's English is not necessarily the the English of the Empire. Was it mixture? It's a hybrid yeah. thereof, and you know it is his voice. You yeah. Know? yeah. But so he's often been criticised. But you you actually say you know the language is a cross fertilisation, which I think is quite an interesting yeah. idea, and, and that it's there's this amazing plurality in in the book and that you know the afrikaners you know well certainly one of the uh, the, the boers you know has his and then Mzilakazi to begin with is yeah. depicted as a is, is a bit of a rogue but yeah. in the end yeah you know yeah. like he has his his moments and yeah. he's you know so so in that it's it's a really kind of pluralistic book and i i wondered if you kind of agree yeah agree with that and that idea of the polyglot that there's this you know them many languages and voices coming through in that, which is yeah. feels to me very kind of part of... I think, you know, part, part of it is that Plyke, he was, was very widely read. Um, you know, he, he, he read English popular literature. Um, and one of the authors that you can, you can certainly see some quite powerful traces of in Plyke's book is, is Ryder Haggard. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a way, I think what, what Plyke was doing was, you know, he wanted to write a book that people would be interested in and that, that would appeal to them. And I think he saw that, well, Ryder Haggard had kind of cracked this, you know, in, in his series of novels about um, um, you know, the Zulus. Mm-hmm. You know, clearly he had struck a chord, you know, in the English-speaking world, I mean, right across, actually. And I think Plyke thought that, well, he could plug into this, he could use this he could take the form of those kind of novels um, but twist them around and I think that's actually what he's doing in Moody and that that maybe partly kind of explains some of the, the kind of tensions that, that seem to be there um, but one there's one of, of Ryder Haggard's novels Sonata the Lily um, you know there are actually some quite remarkable kind of parallels in terms of you know the, the you know the the setting and the way that the, the storyline develops, and I, I I think that was that was quite you know deliberate. There's a kind of a, a line between following a model and something providing inspiration, and actually parody. And I think Plyke kind of hovers across you know both of those things in in, in Hoodie. 
um, which I, I think is you know is part of the reason for its it, its kind of its fascination. And it's also it's also very funny actually. I think there are lots of you know really kind of nice humorous bits in it as well. I think it's a it it is a kind of a novel of hope ultimately. Mm. Um, you know, particularly a kind of feminist form of hope. You know, women will you know will, will save the world. Um, but I think the point is that. Um, you know, the world is capable of being saved. You know, human action, um, you know, can achieve these things. And that, um, you know, uh, if South Africa is to, uh, you know, move forward from the direction that it seemed to be going at that point, then these were the kind of human qualities that Mm. needed to be allowed to come to the fore. And in some ways, you know, all the different tribes all have their person who's sympathetic to that view. You know, the the Indabele, there's the general, and and in amongst the Boers, there's Phil J. As he yeah. I don't know yeah. why he spells his name like that in in the yeah. original, but and and uh, you know, obviously Mahudi and and Ratago are, yeah. are obviously examples. Of, and I think the other the other element of Mahudi that that kind of links into you know another absolutely crucial concern in Plaiki's life at, at this time is his whole concern with Tswana oral tradition. Mm which he draws upon, you know, quite significantly in, in, in Mahoudi. But what actually happened was that, that I mean, Mahoudi was published in 1930. Mm. The previous few years, Plyke had mostly been writing other things, not in English. I mean, he'd been doing some journalism. But his, his, his efforts were really devoted to Setswana, um, because by this time, I think he rather felt that, particularly after the election in 19. 19- Twenty-eight. Um, I think he rather felt that the political struggle really had been lost, you know, in terms mm. of 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 his kind of way of going about mm. things. And I, I think he really felt that his priority now had to be the kind of cultural survival of of his people, and particularly of of the Setswana speaking people. And so he spent huge efforts in collecting more proverbs. Mm. He was working on a, another reader with a whole lot of um, you know stories and praise mm-hmm. poems and, 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 and folk tales. He was also working with a colleague of his on a dictionary mm-hmm. in Setswana. He was very unhappy with um, you know the existing dictionary and you know wanted to do a, a, another a hugely ambitious project. Um, and then he was he was translating Shakespeare. Um, he'd done some of this before, but he was doing more of it, and he was um, trying to get it published, because, you know, who, after all, was going to be interested in publishing, you know, books, or, you know, Setswana translation mm. of Shakespeare. It was a, a relatively, you know, small... Niche, niche market. It was a niche, it was a niche market. <laughs> but the other crucial, I mean, part of the reason why it was a, a niche market was that um, there was no agreed way of writing Setswana. Mm. You know, the, the missionary societies had all had different ways of doing it. Then the government tried to step in with a, a kind of system of their own, which Plyke was in a wholly opposed to. So he, he was engaged in a, a huge sort of public campaign uh, against these moves on orthographic reform, which uh, might seem a, a kind of slightly idiosyncratic kind of technical mm-hmm. thing. But you know, really, it was about mm-hmm. well, whose language is this and who has the right to, you know, to decide. Mm-hmm. And so he had uh, very strong opinions on all that. And I mean, the what was coming and what had, uh, you, you know, what had uh, been voted in in 1923 was, uh, you know, a government that was attempting to crush 
culture and in some ways this was a kind of continuation of his political activism was that you know he was also standing up for a kind of cultural activism and absolutely trying to lay a foundation for its survival i would, i wanted the last thing i wanted to talk about um was uh, your biography which is um a, a substantially revised biography um and there's a change in the subtitle in that the first subtitle was called Sol Plaki, a South African nationalist it's not it's it's not called that anymore and i was wondering if you had if your opinion of him had changed in any major kind of significant way from 1984 to 2018 what has changed between the, the biographies and what has remained the same <laughs> um quite a lot has changed um i i did a um a huge amount of of additional further research and actually you know found far more material relating to his life than i i thought you know ever might ever be possible and, and so i i kind of started really thinking well i'll just do a you know a, a new edition a revised edition um and actually ended up i think with you know what what really is a is a new book mm -hmm. it, it kind of feels to me a, a new book anyway mm -hmm. um and I, I suppose the i mean apart from light being shed on on lots of aspects of, of, of Planky's life. I, I, I suppose what I have become sort of far more aware of is Planky's ability to to kind of shape things. Um, I, I think when I started I, I, I started I mean I came to it as a as a historian um, and originally doing a PhD where you know bi biography PhDs at that time weren't particularly encouraged you know it was kind of social forces and, and, and classes and all of that that were you know that considered to be the appropriate sort of focus and so I slightly approached Pikey with a view to well what light does he shed upon this issue or that issue you know in order to kind of meet the the kind of expectations of a PhD thesis mm -hmm. and although I, I then kind of you know redid the first one away from the, the PhD I think there were elements of that 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 remain so I think I think what I've been you know become far more aware of is is where Pikey was able to pursue his own agenda often very successfully um, you know you can look at um, his you know meetings with various kind of white politicians and, and it, it I, I just became you know um, aware of how often he actually seemed to manage to come away with if not all that he wanted then with um, you know with, with some of the things that he wanted so I suppose it was you know I, I think he was just able to you know to make a space for himself um, against all of the odds you know given the nature of, of South Africa at that particular time and I think it it you know from the perspective of apartheid and so forth it you know it, it was sometimes easy to look back you know and simply to see just a, t a picture of kind of total oppression mm -hmm. um, and the effect of that sometimes was actually to kind of disempower people and the lives that they that they led um, and also I think so often in the literature there would be an emphasis on the political the whole time and, and you you know you would therefore undervalue you know different aspects of, of Pikey's life and so I, I think what I you know tried to do in this book is really to give you know proper attention you know to all of those things to look at um, you know Pikey's family life to look at his social life um, and really to see a kind of a life you know in the round as it were rather than 
Plyke as kind of contributor to the growth of African nationalism, such as you know is is suggested, mm-hmm. for example, in the the title of the of, of the first book. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's a more it's a much more personal story. Um, uh, and I mean, he is such a sympathetic character. Uh, you know, he was such a sympathetic figure. I, my first encounter, real encounter, where I, I mean, I knew about the novel and I knew vaguely about his life, but. I was in the British Library and I read the piece that he'd written on Shakespeare. It was a Shakespeare um, exhibition on Shakespeare's work. And there was Sol Plyke's uh, essay sitting behind a a vitrine or whatever they're called. Um, And I read the the bit about, you know, how Shakespeare had influenced his romance with his wife. Um, And, you, you know, it's those little vignettes which you have in the book as, as so make him such an appealing yeah. and interesting figure. Yeah. yeah. And I've also, um, I mean, I, I agree absolutely with that, but I've also tried to kind of raise um, some, you know, slightly more tricky issues, um, you know, such as, um, well, if Plyke was busy off in England and America, um, what about his wife mm-hmm. Elizabeth back home? and the children and um, you know what effect did it have on their lives and you know what part did you know did they play in it um and and certainly you know in relation to his his children i mean there were difficult issues i think they they found it very difficult growing up in the shadow of you know somebody i mean as anybody would somebody like 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 plikey given his his huge kind of you know moral force and not, you know not to mention all his you know his, his kind of achievements and if you put that together with the situation of what was actually happening in South Africa at the time, you know, black jobs being got rid of and, you know, being replaced by whites. The, you know, the, the, the opportunities and possibilities that his, his children had were, were far more limited. And when they, you know, they, when they started to drink, for example, I mean, there were huge bust-ups, you know, within, mm-hmm. within the family. Because he was very anti... He was he was anti all of that. He was abs- and in fact for a while in the nineteen twenties he was involved in a temperance organisation and he always felt that that kind of you know individual behaviour and individual example were absolutely vital. So so when he saw you know his his children liking a drink or two now and again, uh, I think it was I mean it was probably pretty devastating for for all of them. Um, and I think also there are legitimate questions to be asked about well I mean why did Plyke stay away out of the country for so long. Mm. I mean, part of it was, you know, he was he was writing his novel and he wanted to get it published. Um, I mean, that's great because mm. we have it. But, you know, I think Elizabeth was, I mean, none of the letters have survived, mm. unfortunately. But, you know, clearly they were keen for him to, you know, to come home okay. rather sooner than, mm. he, than he did. And his, his, his son, actually, interestingly, um, got to Fort Hare... Was this in this was in Ledger. Um, you know, very, very bright. He he knew more languages than than, than his than his father. Mm. You know, he got to Fort Hare, but he didn't finish the course. Um, he had to drop out. I think actually just before matriculating. And this was this he put down. This was you know, well the money ran out, and also I had to go and support my mother uh, Elizabeth because uh, his father was away. So you can see, you know, the impact of. The process of achieving what he achieved, you know, I think there were there were certainly casualties along the way, and clearly this has echoes with, I mean, for example, Nelson Mandela and you know and what's 
what we used to hear from him about that side of things. Well, thank you very much for the interview. It was amazing yeah, meeting you and listening about life of Sol Thank you very okay. much. Well, thank you. My, my pleasure.